0: Do you ever want a chance to make fun of me? Uh, I was about 13 minutes into recording this rumination when I realized my mic was muted. It would actually be more accurate to say the mic was switched. I was recording just the desktop audio rather than just the mic, which is what I do for these ruminations. So at a glance, it looks like it's fine. It wasn't until I looked more closely that I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) Oops. So I'm going to be basically repeating myself because I literally just did that. So if I sound like I'm repeating, you know, if I'm I'm saying a script or whatever, it's because I literally just talked about this. (sighs) One of the things that's kind of frustrating for me uh, as an analyst, as someone who ruminates on things for a living, is when I find it difficult to find the words in order to describe something. Lord knows I get accused of rambling every now and again, and I am a little bit... uh, uh, You know, that is is true. I'm a little guilty of that. That is true. But part of the reason is because I don't like saying something in brief when I can say it in more detail. I want to try and be as specific as I can. It is my opinion that people summarize too much in real life. And thus, you know, I try to push against that whenever I can. But when I just don't know what to say to describe something, well, that's just massively frustrating. And that brings me to Tracy Torme. He is a author and teleplay, one of the major screen- screenwriters for TNG in Season 1 and Season 2. I don't remember exactly when he leaves the show, but I'm pretty sure it's towards the end of Season 2 or in Season 3, one of the two. Now I don't like Torme's writing. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. But he's not what I'd call a terrible writer. He's not actively bad. This isn't levels of code of honor or justice or or frickin' threshold or whatever. There's just issues with the way how he writes. And again, it's difficult to describe, so I'm going to do my best here for the second time. A lot of the scenes he writes feel very clunky. Like a scene just takes a little bit too long to finish, and some scenes go go like jerkingly forward. Like, okay, now here's the next scene. Like there's no actual proper pace to it. I can name a specific example of that in this episode. There's a bit where Data's talking to Graves, and then it just kind of cuts over to uh, Dr. Selar and Troy, and the woman whose name I can't even remember her name, and then it just kind of cuts right back to, to Data and Graves. Like, there's no proper pacing between these cuts and between these scene breaks. He's trying to imply that time has passed, but he doesn't do it. Instead, it's just, and then, right? And then and sometimes the scene just kind of plods onward, like it's never going to end. Another problem he tends to have is the dialogue itself doesn't feel like it's actually the characters talking. Some of the things they say fall into the classic writer's traps of saying things that are too obvious or too obviously expositional. So, you know, this is a paraphrase or made-up example, but, oh My God! Captain! They're exploding! Yes! Something must have detonated over there. You know, it's unnecessary and redundant, and it also treats the audience like they're an idiot. It's like, okay, we we can literally see the explosion, guys. You don't have to say, they've exploded. Um, He does that, and this is not the first time they've had this problem, and unfortunately, I know for a fact this is not the last episode we'll have this problem with because he does at least one more episode in this style that I'm aware of in season two. We'll get there. The other problem, I mentioned the characters don't sound like themselves. They feel just a little bit, off and the best way I can describe this is some episodes the characters just click like you're going through and it's like yes that that sounds like something that data would be saying in the moment and it pulls you into the episode so you feel like you're watching data and Picard and Riker and Troy and Tasha and Worf and Geordi and uh, Pulaski am <laughs> <I'm> missing anyone <laughs> but when when these kind of episodes happen, and it's not just Tormey, but you know when these kind of ha- episodes happen, what it instead looks like is you're looking at Spiner and Stewart and Frakes and you know the actors. It feels more like you're watching a play and you're pulled out of the experience than you're watching a show and being pulled into it. I hope that tries that, that kind of describes it because I really don't have much else to to say about that. I. I also have to say that it's funny because originally this episode was going to be two other separate episodes which they had these old ideas with and they kind of just kind of mashed them together into this one. But Tracy Torme was the mainliner for one of those episodes and he is the one who actually did the teleplay for the conjoined f- surface. So it, you know, this is clearly his style. I could say that even if I didn't know that because it is clearly his style. It's very apparent. Which brings me to another weird thing. I want to talk about Dr. Silar or Seelar, or Selar. They say it a couple of different ways across the series. How many of you know who I'm talking about before I even go into any detail? I bet it's several of you. Because she's a Vulcan, played by Susie Plaxken. Plaxen. Plaxen? Plaxen? Um, who you may recognize as the actress who also plays Keeler, Worf's love interest. And eventual wife. First wife? Um, <clears throat> I guess that never actually happened. Whatever, you get my point. Now, she's a decent actress in her own right, but what's really weird, Cellar Celar? God, they say it so many different ways. And it's a weird word for me to say, Celar is what I feel like saying, so I'm just going to say it that way. Dr. Vulcan has several... <sighs> she's one of that weird category of secondary characters that's very recognizable. I bet most of you answered yes when I asked that earlier. I'll be looking in the comments for this when this episode comes out, but I imagine most of you are like, oh yeah, I know who that is, of course I do. Because she's mentioned throughout the whole rest of the show. Pretty much all the way through its run. But she only appears once. Ever. I was actually shocked to discover this. I didn't even realize this. This is the only episode she's ever in. Right here. She's mentioned a lot. (laughs) Now, this is actually kind of clever in its own right. And kind of a smart way to maintain TNG's approach to setting continuity. The idea of the feeling of, well, that character who has been a regular, who who is part of the crew, is still part of the crew. You know, that kind of, um, well, it's continuity. It's a form of continuity. But also, you can't always get the same actresses back to play a guy who or a girl who has three lines, right? There are realistic and functional, feasible problems with making that happen. So having them name-dropped every now and again in the background is a good way to kind of maintain that sort of continuity without the the hassles of real-life problems. Unfortunately, extras are very essential to the production of a good televised work, in my opinion, but also very difficult to pull off, especially since it's considered very unglamorous work, to play someone who has three or four lines and shows up constantly, right? I mean, we all know uh, Denise Crosby's comic, Can We Just Put like My Shoes Back There So I Don't Have to Stand Here in Costume for a Few Hours, Right? Like, it's very unglamorous to do that kind of work, but it's so essential to good production. My opinion, of course. Anywho, funny thought. Dr. Silar was actually supposed to have a love story with Worf in the original design for her. (laughs) Heh. Makes sense to me. Anywho, let's talk about Data's beard. Because I kind of like this. Probably the only character moment in the whole episode. And I'm going to explain why that's relevant later. Because it feels to me like Data was like either experimenting because he wanted to change his visual appearance knowing how visually dependent most humanoid species are, thus trying to see how people would react to him differently if he literally looked differently, or because he was trying to change his appearance because he's trying something new as part of his continuing search to be human or more, you know, whatever. Now, the reason I also mention that is I get this really strong impression. He gives this description of his beard, and it's basically straight out of a textbook, I like the mental image that Data sat down and was looking at these beards, and while he has some degree of aesthetic sense, which we will see develop over the future, I, I imagine he looks at these like, what's the difference? So he just starts reading the descriptions, and he picks out the description he likes best, memorizes that description, and then he gives it while he is describing his beard to Troy and Geordi. I don't think it looked as bad as it should have for Troy to giggle and run off, but again, as I already mentioned, character incontinuity, blah, blah, blah. Now, I actually, I know this is going to sound weird, but I actually try not to get too nitpicky for these things. I've already been accused as of now many times of being way too nitpicky and toxic actually in these ruminations, which I find amusing. I imagine those people have never seen actually toxic people on the internet. But, in those accusations, I, I do take those to heart, as weird as that may sound, because I'm not here to nitpick this. That's not my goal. My, here is, my goal here is to talk about this, to ruminate on it, to discuss it with you guys, to read your comments, and to th- see what you think going forward. Now, I mention that because it means that while I am not ashamed of or afraid to nitpick, that's not my goal. I'm not going into this like, oh, I'm going to break this apart, and I'm going to show every little... No, 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 I, that's not my intention. <sighs> However, if something really bothers me, I try to go into detail on why it does, which is basically nitpicking. Which brings me to the near-warp transport. When I was a kid, watching this episode for the first time, I remember thinking, why are they doing this? Mom, why are they doing this? And she's like, I don't know. I guess they're in a hurry. Why don't they just beam down and then leave? I don't know. It's such a weird thing. And this is, again, kind of Torme style. And I'm still building up to a point here. Because, <laughs> I'm going to give the analogy first this time, this time record, and we'll see what you think of it as I build up to it. The analogy is, imagine you're watching an episode, and there's all of a sudden, someone's like, oh my god, look, there's a, there's a frog with 15 eyes. And the camera switches over to the frog with 15 eyes. And for like two minutes, all that everyone can talk about is this frog with 15 eyes. And then the camera goes back to the action, and they forget it ever existed. That's what this feels like. It's like, hey, look at look at this. We're doing this super dangerous. Well, actually, they never mention it's dangerous. We're doing this super risky. Well, they don't actually mention it's risky either. We're doing this maneuver that will never be mentioned again, not only in this episode, but in the future, because we're in such a hurry. Now, the such a hurry part is the one thing I don't have a problem with. We need to go get to save those people pronto. Thing is, beaming doesn't take a long time. Let me let me try to explain my point a little bit better here. If they had been like, we need to beam bound and get going immediately. Okay. Yeah. Here to beam bound. Zzz, beam down. Five seconds. Zzz, zzz. It's about five seconds. It might, we can say six if we really want to give it time. S- seconds. And that's being generous, by the way. So we beam them down, and then we leave. What additional time do they gain by not doing that? Like, follow the sequence of events, warp in, be- start beaming down, warp out. Right? So it, they basically save, if we're still being generous, maybe three seconds by doing this maneuver that may or may not be risky and may or may not be dangerous, but they spend a whole lot of time talking about it, or excuse me, a whole, whole lot of attention talking about it for about the two minutes that it's on screen, and then they forget it ever existed. It feels so weird that they even bother doing this, and this is kind of what I mean. Which brings me to my next point. So, what's the point of this episode? I know that sounds like a really weird thing to say. I am one of those very strange people who believes there has to be a point in everything in an episodic work. Now, sometimes the point could just be to be entertaining. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I I like Snickers as much as anyone else. Actually, I don't like Snickers that much. But you you get the analogy. I'm a Reese's peanut butter cut myself kind of guy, if you want. Um... I will accept large donations, Reese's. If you want to send me some, but no, seriously though, I, being entertaining—nothing wrong with that. Um, Character—you know, something, do, something interesting with the characters. Uh, maybe something relevant to, like, a really interesting plot, or maybe some kind of thematic point or some kind of concept you want to explore. But what of these things is done in this episode? It's not particularly entertaining to me. In fact, I found it very boring. I'll. <laughs> uh, One of my notes here is literally just the word dull, because for, I did the math on this already, uh, 17 minutes and 13 seconds, I had nothing to talk about. Just nothing was happening worthy of note. That's a huge chunk of a 45-minute show. (laughs) So, you know, it wasn't particularly entertaining. It doesn't really do anything with any of the characters, Um, the the most character focus we get on anyone is Ira Graves, and that's not really interesting. It doesn't really do much with the concepts. It does the body snatchers kind of concept, which is a very old concept, even by the 80s, but also isn't particularly done well. It does the Starfleet are idiots, but then it also immediately reverses tilt on that one, so I'm not sure what the point of that was. There's no big themes here. The closest thing, if I'm willing to be generous, that this episode gives us is the idea that Data is a sentient sapient being, which... uh... A is not a new idea, and B has been done better, and will be done better. So again, what's the point of this episode? And I, <laughs> and I bring that up in immediate following to the, the beam down thing, because that's what it feels like. That feels like that, we gotta do the half-warp beam down, is an analogy for the episode as a whole. Hey, here's this episode. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I have two, three, four, five... Five more notes total to talk about in this episode. That's it. So, moving along. I want to talk about Morgan Shepard. Now, first of all, Morgan Shepherd is not a bad actor. He's not the best, but he is certainly good. Um, he has done several other Star Trek roles. He will do other Star Trek roles in the future. Uh, you may recognize him as the evil Vulcan from Star Trek 2009, or the Klingon, uh, the Ruripente uh, Warden from Star Trek Six. He's done other roles as well. Um, the thing is, either because of the writing, the actor, or the directing, or some combination thereof, he lacks the necessary oomph to make his character work in his initial introductory scene. Now, let me explain what I mean a little bit about this. There are two other characters I've covered semi-recently, from my perspective, that are a, a similar concept, but better executed. Uh, Hammond, over in Jurassic Park, and i got to look up his name, Psyatek, over in Deep Space Nine. Both of these are people who are arrogant, egotistical, pompous, full of themselves, but do something to make that more manageable, more palatable for the audience. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. You can have an irritating, proud of a character who then gets their comeuppance. That can work. Uh, you can have an irritating pride of a character who has the charisma necessary to, to smooth that over. So they come across as enjoyable to perceive, even if they are somewhat antagonistic. You can have someone like that who has hidden depths to them, inner humility or layers of shading or something to, to flesh them out as a character other than just being full of themselves. None of that is present in Ira Graves in his initial scene. I want to keep stretching that part because his initial scene where he's there and he's talking to the doctors and he's walking around, is just kind of aggravating to go through. He is so full of himself, and nothing out salvages that at all. That being said, I, I want to give special praise to the scenes and to the actor between him and Data, which do much better, and are probably my overall favorite episode, uh, scenes in the entire episode. There's a lot more natural, dynamic, good chemistry between Spiner and Shepard. Boy, that's a weird sentence to say. And um, between Morgan Shepard and Spiner... Prince Spider. and he I feel like he opens up a little bit more as a character in that scene probably my favorite line in that scene dialogue actually it's a bet and forth is where he says oh, I was quite a lady killer when I was younger and Data says you condone homicide?" no it's a phrase Data it means I was super awesome with the ladies that's not how he phrases it but that's what he says and then Data says oh were you really and then there's this, this, this slight pause and then Graves says no no I, not really but, it's I'm dying. It's my life. I want to remember it the way I want to. Something about that added a, a nice additional dimension, and several of the other interactions, too, added nice additional dimensions to his character, which made him far more interesting. It's also interesting to note that Spiner did some good work with Graves as well, someone who is clearly unstable, very unstable, but also someone who is not inherently evil. Someone who is actually repulsed by the kind of violence that ends up happening. In fact, if I could skip forward to my last note on the thing here, I like how Picard ends up dealing with this particular dilemma. There's several ways they could have, but instead the, the route he chooses is to talk him down. Because Graves is not actually an inherently violent person. He's not an inherently evil person. He sounds wonderfully on top of things. And again, credit to Spiner here. He sounds on top of things and confident until someone points out what are effectively his mistakes. And what's best about that is, while he tries to cover up for it, his tone and posture clearly indicate how much that bothers him, either because he lost control or because he really is against violence. He's the kind of person who wouldn't hurt someone else so violently and horribly. They they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have told me I couldn't be here. It also makes perfect sense to me that the Graves data would be so unstable and violent because of the fact that he was having a brain degenerative disease, you know, a deleterious effect on his mind, and then, after his mind had already deteriorated, uploaded the deteriorated mind copy onto data. Thus, what we're seeing is actually effectively not even Graves, ignoring the fact that it's not Graves. What we're seeing is Graves, who is now, you know, who's, who's still effectively in the thralls of the disease. It may not be killing him, but he's still having the symptoms, if you follow. Which I do like that little cleverness. I also find it interesting, in the original script, they made a point that this was a clone all along. They actually completely cut that from this one, which I find amusing, but at the same time, I suppose it was an unnecessary line. This is a clear example, in my opinion, of the fact that Graves died on the planet. He, he copied, he, he, he made a digital copy of himself, but the original Graves still died. However, the episode tries to make it so that either he isn't aware of that or he isn't willing to accept that. I kind of like the latter option, personally. That Data Graves knows that he is a duplicate, a copy of the original, but can't bring himself to accept that. Because, after all, he still has a lot of the same plot problems and flaws of the original, right? (sighs) Now, so I only have two more notes to talk about here. Uh, oh, actually, I do want to mention one other thing really quick. It just occurred to me. As weird as this may sound, I like that Data opens up about his off switch with him because that actually makes sense to me. He obviously considers it a very private you know, thing that he doesn't want to tell just about anyone about. And yet, at the same time, <laughs> he, he probably doesn't understand familial connection the way we do. But he understands it intellectually. He understands what the word "grandfather" means. He understands that you're supposed to trust that person and be open with them and, and you know bring them into your uh, you know, your circle of um, I don't I don't know what to call it your circle of trust basically. So the fact that Graves is is behaving this way to him and, and engendering this thing to him and Data just accepts that. I like the idea that he didn't really consider there was any untoward thing, about admitting that he has an off switch. And then, of course, the music gets all ominous, just in case we missed that fact. Oh, that brings me to my next point. So, the music gets all ominous, and from that exact moment, we know that Graves is going to do something with Data. And from the very moment that we see Graves Data, or Data Graves, um, he acts differently. Now, it's admittedly somewhat subtle. It's mostly the cadence of his tone, but it's there. It's, it is different. Spiner portrays him differently. And then he just kind of portrays him more and more and more and more differently each scene he's in until it gets blatantly obvious to even three year olds in the audience that, hey, that's, that's not data. This brings me to my final point. And this is why this episode just kind of ughs for me right here. From about 18 minutes and six seconds to about 24 minutes and 24 seconds is basically just this long slog of, of data. The construction of the episode makes it feel like it's supposed to be a big reveal that Graves is in Data, but the episode is also constructed in a way to make it really, really obvious that Graves is in Data. And then uh, for the next about 11 minutes, all the way up until the 35 minute and 19 second mark that's finally the point at which they're like, oh, it's just this huge chunk of time that's basically spent on Data Graves being different. I'm different. I'm different. And nothing of significance happens in this huge swath of time. (sighs) It's actually accurate. Seventeen minutes and thirteen seconds. Basically, nothing happens other than the episode building up the so-called mystery of the fact that we figured out originally, and the episode gave away. Even if we weren't, even if, if we didn't figure this out, the episode makes it very clear from the beginning, from the second act, <laughs> that something horrible is happening, and that something is going on with Data, and it takes seventeen minutes to get that. I'm sorry to keep hanging on this. But it's what, one of my biggest problems with this episode, like I mentioned earlier. What's the point of all this? Do we see anything interesting about Picard or War for Data? Uh, no. Do we see anything about, interesting about Graves? Uh, no. <laughs> we see that he's a little bit deranged and apparently can't keep a secret to save his life, which is also funny, by the way. I get that he's unstable, but it's funny how much he gives himself away constantly to everyone. And that brings me to my one weirdly redeeming trait of this episode. And I say weirdly redeeming because it's also at the same time kind of damning. I have talked before in this very, in this very show about TNG about how often people in Star Trek get mind controlled or mind altered or replaced by a duplicate or whatever. And people just kind of like, Muh. Happened in Datalore, <laughs> for God's sakes. Happened in, uh, Oh, God, the episode I can never think of the name of. It's very early season one, where Picard gets replaced, right? And then Crusher, and then Worf, and all sorts of other people, right? Very common thing, and nobody ever notices. This episode is super weird in the fact that nobody notices, except for the fact that people notice. It's actually contradictory. In fact, there's even this really weird point where Picard figures it out and says, huh, and Troy says, what? Troy, who has just scientifically proven that there are two personalities in Data and is describing them to Picard. Picard figures it out, and Troy's like, huh? And then later on, Picard's like, hey, sound familiar? Oh, yeah, I guess it's him. What? (laughs) Why does... (laughs) And I wrote down a note here that literally just says Data Graves lunges out of character as Data as far as he can, while at the same time trying to present himself as Data. It's just this whole weird middle chunk of the episode. And then there's the confrontation at the end where Picard confronts him. That was good. I did like that. Although the music could have used to work. And then the episode ends. This is probably, I think this is the very first, maybe second time where the little lighthearted joke at the end of an episode doesn't bother me. Did I win? <laughs> Something about that did actually make me chuckle a bit. So I'll give the episode credit there. I have nothing else to add. I hope you've enjoyed